It's in his name. Amen. Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read briefly from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. Our sermon text this morning is back in Proverbs chapter 10. We'll turn there in a moment, Proverbs chapter 10. But before we go there, let's hear from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, For if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. Amen. The Apostle Paul again directs us to the unity of the church. But notice that he establishes that unity in our diversity. We are not unified because we are the same. It is unity, not uniformity. It is not our ability to be identical to one another that makes us the same. This is a great temptation in the church. We want to achieve unity by eradicating diversity. Now, obviously, in our late, you know, late 20th, wow, that's like 20 years old. In our early 21st century culture... We are preoccupied, perhaps, with ethnicity and the different challenges of our cultures, nationalities. And yet there is something far more subtle and sinister in the life of the church. That we seek unity in our unique expression of spirituality and doctrine instead of in Christ. Do you see here the words in which Paul says that he has given many members? We didn't choose this. God did. 
Friends, if we were truly honest with each other, we would look around at this pulpit and these pews and say, boy, I would make a church out of different people. But we're not in charge. It's Jesus' church. He chose these members. Just, I love this line, verse 18, just as he pleased. Why are we together here? Because it makes Jesus happy. Because he likes this fellowship being the way it is. It's his body. Our unity is not ultimately in our performance, in our belief, in us. Our unity is in Christ. Who he is and what he has done. With this in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 10. We're returning to our sermon series through the book of Proverbs. I admit with great fear and trembling on my part. Proverbs chapter 10. So like many preachers before me, I have preached Proverbs 1 through 9. That's the part of the book that makes the most sense. They all hang together. They're nice little pericopes, exactly as we expect. Beginning in chapter 10, we get a bunch of seemingly random Proverbs that are often hard to see how they relate to each other. In fact, one could rightly argue, a lot of them don't perhaps relate to each other. And yet, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. So, Proverbs chapter 10. Let us hear from the wisdom of Solomon. Proverbs chapter 10, beginning with verse 1 down through verse 11. Proverbs 10, 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. He who walks with integrity walks securely. But he who perverts his ways will become known. He who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a prating fool will fall. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Amen and amen. It may sound like the start of a lousy joke, but last Saturday on Geneva's campus at homecoming, there was a pastor, a philosopher, and a politician. I was the pastor. The three of us were catching up as we had not seen each other for many years. As we were telling the stories of how hard our lives had moved forward and how they hadn't, We suddenly looked across the campus, aglow in autumn's glory, and noticed something startling. There were numerous white tents dotting the campus landscape. Underneath were rows of tables and chairs and 
They were laden with trays of food and drink, empty and untouched. They were the tents that Geneva had set out for all the class reunions, and no one had come. There wasn't a shortage of people there, but they weren't gathering together. Late that afternoon, my curiosity peaked. I walked from tent to tent, and entire trays of untouched food were still wrapped in plastic. Entire jugs of lemonade and tea were untouched. Now, skipping out on your college reunion is hardly a big problem. It's hardly the worst example I could have come up with, but it's recent. Once again, I was struck by the realization that our society doesn't know how to be a society. Our communities don't know how to come together. We, we live in a world that has lost the idea of congregation, the idea of assembly. Indeed, we use sacred terms like meeting and visiting for electronic engagements in which there is no hug and no touch. We transform our vocabulary to fit this tech-drunk age. We transform our vocabulary to fit the idolatrous individualism that has taken root within us. And Solomon gives us a glorious, if albeit painful, no in Proverbs chapter 10. And he says, no, you were built for community. You were built for relationship. And if you're going to live together in this sweet fellowship we call the church, you're going to have to discover the first principle of all healthy communities. This is the gospel truth for us this morning. This is the good news for our hurting souls and our lonely hearts. Jesus is the only sinless son. So often, our relationships in our communities are crumbling and falling apart, not simply because somebody invented a bit of technology. Technology is not the problem. It's the heart that holds it. Why do we long for a life without community, without relationship as much as we do? Because people are just lousy to live with. They're sinners. And they sin. But Jesus is the sinless son. But Jesus is the one that when he enters into the relationship, he remakes it. When he enters into the community, he renovates it. Jesus is the one Solomon points us to in Proverbs chapter 10 and says, if you're going to have a healthy church, it's going to be because it's rooted in Christ. If you're going to live together as a body, it's because you're living together in Christ. Beloved, this is what is true for us today. That Jesus is the only sinless Son. So in Him, live like a body. Live together in Him. Look with me at verse 1. Solomon introduces a new section in the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon. It seems like a weird thing to say right here in chapter 10. We've already had nine chapters of Solomon's Proverbs. But the reality is that Solomon is introducing us to a new collection of Proverbs. The Proverbs that were given to us in chapters 1 through 9 are, are a larger collection in which there's a more 
lengthy contemplation on a single theme. Here is a different kind of collection. The Proverbs found in this section runs from chapters 10 through chapter, through chapter 10 through chapter 22. Solomon describes these Proverbs as bite-sized. They're, they're little pocket-sized Proverbs that we find it hard to hang them together. But this opening section is focused on one central theme. A wise son makes a glad father. But a foolish son is grief to his mother. The interesting thing about a proverb is that as soon as it strikes your ear, you go, yeah, duh. I mean, a wise son makes dad happy, right? There's two ways to interpret that, isn't there? It's either that when your son is wise, you are happy. Or it's that when your son is wise, he works to make you happy. Whichever one it is, the wise son gladdens the heart of the father. The foolish son, by contrast, is grief to the mother. But there's a depth of perception that we can achieve when we read this with closeness and attentiveness. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Number one, you can read this, the wise son makes a glad father as pointing directly to Solomon's son who cannot possibly be Rehoboam. You remember his story, right? He was not a wise son. He took the wisdom of his father's counsel and threw it in the trash and followed the wisdom of his peers. Which was not wisdom at all, but fool. Foolishness. Rehoboam was a foolish son who surely brought grief to his mother. So when Solomon embeds in the scriptures this saying, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is grief to his mother, he must be speaking of someone else. Another son of Solomon, a successor, who we call Jesus Christ. You'll remember that the Gospels say of Jesus, he grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature in favor with God and man. He is the wise son of Solomon. Not Rehoboam. In fact, there are two times that Jesus, when at the waters of the Jordan or on the Mount of Transfiguration, hears a divine message from his heavenly Father. And what does his Father say? You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the wise Son of Solomon who made his Father happy. Of course, Jesus is also the wise son who did the most foolish thing imaginable. He took up a cross. He carried it to Golgotha. And he was hung upon it. Paul calls it foolishness. Foolishness to the Greeks. Foolishness to the world. To us, the power of God for salvation. And what does the angel tell Mary upon her conception? It will be a sword that pierces her soul. We could read this verse on a superficial level and simply say to one another, little children, if you want to make dad happy, be wise. And if you want to make mom be miserable, be foolish. Or we could read it with the Christ-drenched truth that he is the wise son who made his father happy. He is indeed the foolish, quote-unquote, Son, who carried a cross to the grief of his mother. Perhaps we could split the difference and read it this way. 
He is a wise son who made his father happy. He obeyed the will of his father. He reverenced God's every command. He lived in the fear of the Lord as a wise son. And we together today confess we are the foolish children of God. He is the wise son we need for we are the foolish sons who constantly grieve our parents. I like this third reading. I like it because it speaks to my experience. In which I see in Jesus a wise son obeying the will of his father. And I see in me a constant source of grief to those who are around me. Even those who have loved me, made me, and cared for me. Is this not our experience? Is this not the gospel truth that we see? Jesus is so superlative and I am so deficient. He is the wise son. How then shall we be reconciled? How then can I go from being a foolish son who grieves even the one who loves him most and has nothing but unyielding and unnamed pride for her child, yet I grieve her? She's probably going to listen to this recording and I'm going to get an email. But you know what I mean. My friends, as foolish children of God, bringing grief to all our dearest relations, we are in need of a relationship to a wise son who makes happy his heavenly father. And so Solomon tells us in verses 2 and 3 how it is we are to move from death to life. He says, the treasures of wickedness profit nothing. He gives us the reason at the end of verse 4. For God casts away the desires of the wicked. You see, the wicked desire treasure. The beginning and end of these four lines go together. The treasures of the wicked and the desires of the wicked. They are in pursuit of wealth and of power. They are in pursuit of relationships and affirmation. They are in pursuit of all the emotional and psychological enrichment of the world. They are in pursuit of all of the success and achievement. But Solomon warns his son, don't live like that. It will profit you nothing. If you invest in success, you'll get nothing. If you invest in achievement, if you invest in wealth, if you invest in the things and treasures of this world's wickedness, you will find that God casts them all away. Now this is certainly an experience that is common in humanity. We can see this time and time again. But ultimately, we can point to only one place where we see this fulfilled truly and completely. You can't take it with you. No matter how much success you obtain in this life, no matter how much progress you make in achieving the treasures and desires of your heart, it will profit you nothing when you die. We all die naked and ashamed. We all die without any hope except Christ. For in between these two dire positions... The wicked desires and the wicked treasures which we pursue and heap up in this life comes another word. But righteousness delivers from death. Why do the treasures of the wicked profit nothing? Because they can't stop death. 
but righteousness can. Why are the wicked's desires cast away by God? He will not allow the righteous soul to famish. God delights in the righteous soul and feeds and nourishes and enlarges it so that all might be well. But notice our great problem. We're the bookends and Jesus is the middle. We are the wicked ones treasuring up wickedness and Christ is the righteous one. And so we must be united to him. How sweet this word righteousness delivers from death. It is something that can be given away. It is something that Christ, as the one wise son that ever lived, as the one sinless son that ever existed, could gather together all of his righteousness and give it to the perishing. In fact, that's the exact metaphor that Solomon now develops for his wise son. My son, I want you to live wisely. Walking righteously before God. Delivering others from death by the greatness of your righteousness. Feeding and nourishing and satisfying the hungry souls of this world. Solomon speaks to his son as one who could bring the righteousness this world needs. And so he lays before him a description of what his son is to grow into. Verses 4 and 5. He speaks first of his hand. He who has a slack hand becomes poor. Notice the parallel again at the end of the four lines. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. This slack hand is also known as a sleeping hand. The one who is idle and inactive during the critical moments when it is necessary. You see, God does not give To this world, a relentless and unending yield. No, the hand must be diligent and diligent at the proper time. The slack hand becomes poor because the slack hand is not in motion during harvest. The time to work. In between, we see that the hand of the diligent makes rich. For he gathers in summer as a wise Son, this wise son of Solomon has a righteousness that is manual. Yes, that's a pastor pun. It is his hands that begin the work. He has a diligent hand that spends all summer gathering up this harvest of righteousness so that in the fall it is done and there is enough. Notice that just as the second line in our previous passage, by the way, what we're doing is reading poetry, okay? So if you want to know more about what I'm doing, pick up a book on poetry. And all we're doing is reading poetry together. In the second line, just as he did in the previous paragraph, delivers from death, he says, makes rich. But here he is not imagining that the diligent hand is making self rich. But just as the righteous soul saved from death those who are around him, so here the diligent hand makes rich those who are around him. This is the wise son of Solomon who comes into the world to fulfill all righteousness. 
That's what he says to John the Baptist when he's being baptized at the Jordan. I've come to fulfill all righteousness. Having done that with his diligent hand in the time of harvest, in the summer season, when, the, when he himself said to his disciples, the harvest is ready. The grain is white unto harvest. Of course, Paul tells his protege that the harvest is not always ready. He says to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. That means there's an out of season. That means there's sometimes when the church isn't growing. There are sometimes when people aren't believing the word. But this Jesus, this wise son, makes the world rich with his righteousness by having a diligent hand that works powerfully and skillfully to bring about his righteousness. But secondly, he has a blessed head. In verses 6 and 7, the pattern of the poem is reversed. Blessings are on the head of the righteous. Notice the third line. The memory of the righteous is blessed. Both lines have blessing, but we've gone from head to memory. That is to say that when they say the righteous is head, Solomon is meaning that part of the body that is recalled. When I say to you a name of someone famous, let's go with John Calvin, that's safe. What do you picture? Pointy beard, goatee. You picture his head. You picture his face, such as we have it. When we remember a human, we remember the head, the face. We remember the person which is captured in the expressions, but it's captured in the eyes and in the smile. This is what Solomon is speaking of. He has a head, a face that is blessed. When people remember my wise son, they rejoice. They smile. Their lives are filled with a cheer and a blessing. This word blessing, it means happy. It it means a warmth and a joy and enthusiasm for the world. That when we witness the head of Christ, when we witness the face of Christ, when we remember who he is, this wise son of Solomon, we are blessed and happy. By contrast, there is violence in the mouth of the wicked And the name of the wicked will rot. Notice the symmetry again. The name is the part of the person that comes to mind from the mouth. That when you speak the name of the wicked, there is violence and rot. So, again, I could use other examples and say the name of someone famous that would produce violence in some of your hearts. I'll pick on the, like John Calvin, I'll pick on the easy example. Adolf Hitler. Nobody suddenly had warm, fuzzy feelings, did you? His name rots as it comes out of our mouth. His name brings forth a wellspring of bitter and violent emotion within us. But not so our Christ. His memory, his head, his face is a source of cheer and of joy. That just as his hand, diligent and excellent as it is, works righteousness into the world, so the memory of him, the sight of him, works blessing and happiness and joy into the world. But then thirdly, the wise heart. 
As the hand works righteousness into the world, as the memory brings about blessing into the world, so in verses 8 and 9, the wise in heart will receive commands. The parallel is again in the third line. He who walks with integrity walks securely. It seems an odd combination to us to put the wise heart and the integrity walk together. But that's because we're not Hebrew. In Hebrew culture, the heart is the seat of the emotions. It's actually the stomach, the intestines. Because as any male will tell you, my emotions are dictated by the contents of my stomach. This is how the Hebrew culture understood it. But what is more, the walking is a picture of one's habits and one's routines. And believe it or not, I know it's a great scandal to all the self-imposed, self-created, self driven Americans, your habits largely consist of your passions. The things that you love to do are the things you do more than once. The things that are rooted deep in the, in the core of your being is what comes out in your feet. The things you prioritize are the things you repeat. And so Solomon says to his wise son, you must not only have a diligent hand that works righteousness, you must have a memory and a head that brings blessing And you must have a heart that brings out habits that are integrity, that comes from the heart, that are wise. Notice in the first line, we'll receive commands. This wise son of Solomon has a heart and a feet that follow in the ways of God's word. He receives commands. He submits to his directions. What is the first word, if we're really honest, parents... What is the first word almost every child knows? I just hinted at it. No. Like one of the first things your kid will ever say to you is, no, no, mommy, no, daddy. We are born with this twisted and perverted nature by which we walk through the world saying to everyone who loves us and is good to us, no, no. And Solomon says to his son, don't be like that, be wise. Receive commands. Submit to those who love you and have authority over you. The wise in heart walks in the ways of God's commands, walks with integrity and is therefore secure. Notice the contrast, the pratting fool. It's a nice, beautiful word. I like the sound of it. The pratting fool will fall. It has a nice rhythm poetically. I also would have really liked the literal translation from the Hebrew. The foolish lips will be thrust down. That contrast in the poem becomes more clear. That the lips that are full of folly, that is not wisdom, not reverence for God. That those mouths that will not listen to commands, but those mouths that will just fill the air with their own desires and words. They will be thrust down in ruin. The perversion of their way will become known. Those who will not receive commands, but will insist on going their own way. May I use the American phrase? Being themselves. You doing you. Solomon says is a sure way to ruin your life. Being yourself is a good way to ruin your life. Receiving commands is what the wise heart does. The wise son of Solomon needs a diligent hand to work righteousness, a blessed head or memory, 
and a wise heart that receives the word of God and follows it faithfully. But then lastly, notice verses 10 and 11. He who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a pratting fool will fall. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. You see, Solomon saves the best for last. You need a hand that works righteousness, my son. You need a head that brings happiness, my son. You need a heart that is submissive to God, my son. And you need to speak the truth in love. You need a mouth that brings out as a well of life this brimming in the hearts of people. The last line stands alone. This set of four is different than all the other sets of four. There are three negatives and only one positive. He winks with the eye that causes trouble. His foolish lips come to ruin and violence covers his mouth. But the one thing that stands firm is that the righteous mouth, the mouth of the wise son of Solomon, is a well of life. In creating this three-to-one comparison, Solomon brings together the summary. Dear sinner, you and I will ruin every relationship we touch. We will wink with our eye. We will speak folly with our mouth. And we will heap violence on one another with our wicked words. But there is a righteous mouth that from which spills forth a well of life. And of course, what does Jesus say on the great high day of the great feast? Anyone who comes to me and drinks, springs of living water will well up within him. Solomon is directing us to this glorious picture of Christ Jesus who alone is the sinless son, the wise one who said of himself, one greater than Solomon has come. But lest we fear that we have completely undercut all our obedience to these words and the working out of these Proverbs in our lives, let me also remind you of something else Jesus said. And greater things than these you will do. Does that scandalize your quiet little evangelical soul? What on earth does Jesus mean when he says that his church will do greater works than he does? Well, first, I hope I have made it plain by just walking slowly through the text that none of this happens without Christ. It is union with Christ that makes us righteous. It is union with Christ that brings about these things. He is the one who fulfills this passage, not us. But let me show you one other powerful piece of this poetry. Why did Solomon choose to describe his son, his wise son, the righteous one in whom is all this goodness, this way? Why give him a hand? Why give him a head? Why give him a heart? Why give him a mouth? Because that's his body. 
And you, my friends, as you heard from Corinthians and Romans and Psalm 122, are that body. Amen. You are the body of Christ, says the Apostle Paul. So we are summoned in Christ to live like this. Do not skip those two little words that are so essential. It's the whole point of my message. You are summoned in Christ to fulfill these words. Now some of you may say to me, I'm not a good mouth. The Apostle Paul answered that. That's okay. We still need feet and hands and heads. We still need hearts. We are together the body of Christ and individually members of it. This proverb of Solomon that is put together is not random. I don't know what Solomon intended, but I sure know what the Holy Spirit intends. That we today would learn this lesson. All righteousness is in Christ. And in Christ we are righteous. Beloved, Jesus is the only sinless son. In him, live like a body. In him, live together. Please pray with me.